So you can't have me or you sitting in a room trying to overlay an image on top of another image. We use machine learning or what we call artificial intelligence to do that for us. And the problem with that system is it's sort of a garbage in, garbage out. If you have images which are not properly correlated in terms of their quality, what you think is a change is actually a change in the quality from a day-to-day -day basis. We're standing by. Entry interface minus five minutes. The power of EO data is self-evident, but sometimes knowing exactly what those trillions and trillions of pictures of the Earth are telling you is anything but clear. The problem is image quality. Camera companies like Canon, Sony, and Nikon, and now phone makers like Apple and Samsung have all but mastered image quality. The problem has now moved to space. In solving that problem, that's what today's guest, Don Osborne, CEO of Earth Daily Analytics, is all about. His company has a very high ambition to provide a picture-perfect view of the entire Earth each day, so that people looking at EO data, people like farmers, insurance companies, investors, aren't looking at some kind of funky kaleidoscope, but instead, they're looking at a view of the Earth that is crystal clear, and they're able to find exactly what they're looking for. Okay, Don, welcome to the show. John, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so Don, tell me a little bit about what your company, Earth Daily, does and what your primary vision is. We are an Earth observation data and data analytics company focused especially on change detection, which we think will help contribute to the world's bigger problems. You know, I'll give you an example. If you go back 40 or 50 years ago and I just take a poll, if we were sitting around a table and talk about, you know, the biggest problems facing the world, I think we probably would have ended up with a number of regional answers. So we would have talked about wars. And if you go back far enough, it might have been the Vietnam War, it might have been strife, could have been areas like the Middle East, which were of concern. Very few of us would have come up with the list, which I think we all tend to articulate today. For example, climate change, food security, and that's a hot one. I mean, you hear about that every day with what's going on in the Eastern Bloc between Russia and Ukraine, water security or water access, forestation, deforestation, things like environment security and governance and how it applies to commercial businesses and other and other participants around the world. So put all this together, you've got a number of big global problems. And we believe that a global change detection system based on Earth observation can contribute significantly to solving those problems. And that's really what we're all about here at Earth Daily. So when you look at these problems from the sky, from space, for example, as opposed to, let's say, even from a drone or from closer to the Earth, what advantage does a satellite give you when you're looking at these problems? Let's say, let's take an example of food security. Great question. The trade-off that you always have, depending on the altitude or the, the point of view, is usually has to do with resolution, so how you can see things and how much detail you can see, versus how much coverage you get. So the further away, the advantage of satellites is obviously you're far away from the Earth. You can see a great deal of it at any one point in time. The problem is, depending on the technology you're using, you don't get to see a lot of detail. So 
Earth observation for the last, I guess, several decades is really focused on putting a telescope on board a satellite, which gives you better and better resolution. And this is kind of a parallel if you go back to the old photography days when I was young. I dabbled in photography and, you know, I had a 300 millimeter lens, which you stuck on your camera so I could stand further back and I could get great detail. The problem with that was the coverage was small and it had issues about, you know, if I was, say, photographing a football game and you were trying to pick up a player during a play, you know, you had to kind of guess where the player would be because you couldn't move the camera lens around rapidly. So, you know, if it came into your viewfinder and you snapped it quick enough, you got a great shot. If he passed by too quickly or didn't react quick enough, or indeed it was outside of the view of the viewfinder, then you didn't get the shot. So those are kind of the trade-offs that we're facing today when we use Earth observation in this way. In our case, you know, our mantra is viewing the earth everywhere, every day. And we do that in what we think is a fairly unique way. The entire earth everywhere, every day. How, how do you actually accomplish that? Well, first of all, we have a number of sensors on our satellite, which gives us sort of a span of how we view the earth. And we do that with what's uh, about a 240 kilometer swath. And we put up a number of satellites and the way they rotate allows us to look everywhere every day. So it's basically 240 kilometer strips of the earth, which we then aggregate and assemble to produce images as we go. Can you describe the design and functionality of your satellite and how, how it's unique from other earth observation satellites? So it, it's really not just about the satellite. Maybe I can jump up a level. It's really about the system. You know, the satellites play a part in the overall system design. And frankly, that's what makes the Earth Daily offering truly unique in the marketplace. It's really the system overall. And satellites, again, play an important part. There's sort of four tenets to how we view the value proposition of our system. The first one is quality. So if you're trying to look at everything every day, which we are, we're trying to look at everywhere on Earth every day, it's a huge amount of information. And, you know, this kind of goes back to, again, when I was in grade school, we used light tables to do comparisons of things. And I'm talking when I was a little kid now, you know, you put an image on a light table, you'd either put another piece of paper on top to trace it, or if you were looking for differences, you took another image and you lined it up as best you could, and you went to figure out what was different. And, you know, your teacher would grade you on how many things you found were, were different. It's kind of the same thing, except when you're looking at the earth every day, you're doing this on a huge scale. So you can't have me or you sitting in a room trying to overlay an image on top of another image. We use machine learning or what we call artificial intelligence to do that for us. And the problem with that system is it's sort of a garbage in, garbage out. If you have images which are not properly correlated in terms of their quality, what you think is a change is actually a change in the quality from a day-to-day -day basis. So if the images are not lined up properly, we call that geolocation when we do Earth observation, then you think you have a change. In reality, it's not a change at all. It's just a poor co-location of the images. When you talk about the pixel color, which is, comes from the spectral bands and the reflectance off the Earth, if they are different on a day-to-day -day because the imagers are of poor quality, then again, you think you've got to change. And you think that might be a change in the biomass of a field. But in reality, that is just a change in the imager being used. So it's a poor quality issue. And the pixel size, it's the same sort of thing. So the cornerstone of our system is about quality. And that leads us back to the satellites, as you point out. We use 
fairly sophisticated satellites. We don't call them exquisite. They're kind of in the mid-range of the quality, but we do some other things that up their their quality output. But it's the sensors that we use. It's the quality of the satellite we use. It's the way we fly the satellite. All of that gives us sort of quality of the pixel stream, if you will, that comes from space. The second element of our value proposition is, as we've talked about, is everywhere. So we are imaging everywhere on earth every day and that includes coastal waterways and the reason we're doing that is because when you're talking about change detection you don't always know when you get to a future point in time where you want to compare back to you know today's satellites are what usually are called point and shoot so they look at things that they're told to look at and you don't normally look at things you don't need to because you're using up satellite resources the life of the satellite so in our case uh, we made the decision to go everywhere and that everywhere means that if you come out in the year from now and you say, I want to compare back to a year ago, we actually have the image where the other service providers wouldn't necessarily have that available. The next part is what we call temporal consistency. So it's about looking from the same point in space at the same time every day. And we do this using the orbital dynamics of the satellites. And we actually take a picture looking straight down on the Earth at 10.30 to 11 o'clock in the morning every day at the same time every day, which again gives us consistency. So shadows are consistent, the light and the, the angles of the sun, all of that is consistent on a day-to-day -day basis, which again is kind of back to that first point, which is called quality. And the final thing we've done here is recognizing we're collecting all this high quality data. Uh, you have to process it. It comes down in a raw stream of pixels. We build a virtual environment to do the corrections. We correct for cloud coverage, for aerosols in the atmosphere, which again, distorts some of the imagery. And we're able to do this using a fully automated uh, processing system. And we've spent about uh, seven years developing this and about $30 million wow. on that alone, just to make sure that we can handle this data in an automated way, which creates an what we call a file of analytics ready data, which is ready for machine learning or AI to then have a look see to see what the, the change the changes are actually from from day to day we have 22 spectral bands so that means we're taking imagery in in 22 different ways which gives us 22 sources of information so it's a very broad spectrum of information that's collected part of this is utilized to correct for other areas so back to my example previously where we would measure the aerosol in the atmosphere we can get into what that tells us about the environment, but we also measure that aerosol so we can correct for some of the other visible light images which are taken. So, you know, some of these things sort of fix the other, if you will, but overall gives us a vast amount of information about different things. We measure methane, we do different, now we don't have an infinite number of bands, so we focus on sort of the visible range all the way through to the thermal but again they're in certain areas where we think there's most interest for us and most interest for our customers and again as it pertains to some of these larger change detection challenges which you think are facing the world so why change detection why did you focus on that as opposed to just sort of building up an inventory of imagery that someone can search at their own convenience that has kind of been the genesis of the industry, which is more what we call imagery uh, than change detection. We don't think anybody's cracked the code on how to do broad area change detection. We think this leads to helping solve things like food security. So if you have a high-res satellite today and you're looking through a very small aperture, you know, 
you're not looking at every farm field in North America or around the world. You're probably doing that. You can look at a farm field, which is very expensive. But if a farmer wanted a picture of his field, you could provide it. One of our current customers asked us to monitor 15 million square kilometers uh, as often as we can. You can't do that with a high-res satellite. It, it's impossible. Your aperture is too small. It would cost a fortune to do that, whereas we can do that in an economical way. So again, you know, it's horses for courses. We believe there's a set of problems out there where change detection contributes to the solution, um, and that's what we're focused on. You know, there are lots of other applications for Earth observation, and they do a successful job of contributing to other problems. Those aren't the ones we're focused on. So can you go back to that example, high-res satellite imagery? How is that different or how have you taken costs out of the equation so that you could look at the earth often and find things, whereas it, you know, if you wanted to do it in a different way, would just be cost prohibitive? So it's kind of like building a vehicle to get from point A to point B. Depending on how fast you're trying to get there, you know, you'll build a plane or you might build a car or you might build a bike. It all depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to read license plates on a car from space because you're in a defense and intelligence application, then you'll have a very sophisticated satellite with a lot of stabilization, with a lot of other things that are built into it allow you to do that. If you're trying to look at every farmer's field around the world to see who's growing corn and aggregate the corn output, uh, on a daily basis, that's a different system. It's a different application. And, you know, you're going to build a different type of satellite or a different overall system. So, so can you talk a little bit about you capture 22 different spectral bands? Could you maybe even describe what a spectral band is and what, why you've gone onto that strategy? So spectral band, think of it in terms of colors. Simply put, it's about the reflectiveness of a color. And we look at different colors, which tells us different things. So when we look at a crop or a biomass in a field, we can look at red, green, yellow, the set of you know primary colors that we all are familiar with. Each of those can tell us a little bit about crop health, for example. As you move to Bands which are not visible, they can tell us in the classic one be a thermal band. So you can sense a fire, a forest fire before it's it's visible, for instance. It's a heat source, so it shows up differently. And there's all the things in between. Bands that measure that are good at measuring methane, for example, which are not visible, but pick up the, the actual methane in the atmosphere. So they're all a set of different bands for different applications. And again, we've tailored what we're doing for those specific applications which we're targeting. Got it. Okay, cool. So you talked about a really cool example about how what you're doing, the kind of satellite and system that you're designing can be used to monitor something like global wheat production, right? Sure. Let, let me expand on that. So, you know, it, it's it's one thing to talk about change detection. It's all about really extracting from that the insight. So it's one thing to get to that data set, which you can you know put on the light table to compare. It's about what are you comparing? Why are you comparing? And what are you trying to extract? Uh, in the case of uh, agriculture, we have an analytics business, which takes the satellite data as an input and then looks at crop health on a field. So it can look down from space, it can identify certain crops, it can identify that the factor growing wheat, for example, and then it can look and monitor the health of the wheat as it goes through its normal harvesting cycle. Um, so it goes up and increases in its biomass signature, if you will, and then starts to fall off as it gets to harvest. 
So in the case of Ukraine, you know, they planted prior to the war, they planted what's called winter wheat. So winter wheat is something you actually plant in the fall and it comes up in in the spring and you as it starts to come up, you take action with fertilizer or nitrogen, whatever, to make sure it's a healthy yield. Uh, obviously, the war hit between those two points in time. And the first thing that happens is you get growers or farmers, which a, are unable to go into their field simply because, you know, they're being barred with shelling and they're not going to go out regardless of whether the wheat's there or not. And then you've got another group that are trying to do their best to still reap a harvest. And, you know, they are still shipping grain, as we know, this week from Ukraine. One of the things there is it turned out that our partners, we had a we had people that we were doing, you know, commercial business with in Ukraine, because of the war, they were at risk of shutting down. So we actually turned to our customer who was dealing with the farmers and actually funded them to go out and help them to continue their business. And we gave our data for free so that they could help provide the data to the growers to tell them the usual things, which are, as your crops are going through their growth cycle, this is where you should apply nitrogen. This is parts of the field which are not faring well, they're too wet or they're too dry. And so you can actually start to monitor again what that output of the of the grain, or in this case, the wheat throughout the country will be. And they've had a huge problem. And, and, and that extends into other areas, obviously, as well. You get into logistics. It's not just about growing it, as we've seen. It's about getting it to the shipyard and then getting it out of the shipyard out into the other buyer's hands, which of course is this week's problem. But we were able to look in aggregate now at the country and and be able to identify all the farmland which is growing wheat and be able to make a predictive index, if you will, of what we think they'll be able to produce. So we've been doing that and it's clearly gonna be a shortfall. I mean, you actually don't need satellites to tell you that, you can read about it. But we've actually been monitoring other areas and is you know there's a ripple effect. And this is what's really important. This is why it comes back to being a global problem. Uh, yeah, we were doing some work for some customers in North Africa and uh, Morocco, for example, uh, is a producer of wheat, but also one of the larger importers of Ukrainian wheat historically. And that's where they went to buy. Uh, of course, they can't buy. And worse than that, they're having a drought themselves. So we're monitoring their wheat fields and they're, we're finding that they're going to fall short because of the drought. They can't get the wheat. They can't import it. So they're going to have a compounded problem. I mean, we can see a humanitarian crisis coming down the, a mile away. So, you know, the question then becomes, what can everybody else do? So we are able to look around the world, different regions and monitor the other regions to see that if there's going to be a surplus or indeed some of the other regions are facing their own issues, which are usually due to weather and their output could be hindered. And therefore, we globally have a problem, which I think we're all anticipating at this point. So it's pretty interesting. Um, we can do that with various types of crops. But it, when you do this on a regular basis, on an annual basis, and you do it by looking every day you can actually monitor more effectively as you go through those yield curves. Today, with the satellites we have, we can do it, but we end up with a lot of disparate points along that curve, which you kind of fill in, if you will, with a straight line like we all do, but it becomes less predictive in nature and more historical in nature. And we're trying to get to the point it's predictive because that's how you solve some of these problems. So in that scenario, what type of organization looks at that data and then what type of preventative measures or what type of you know proactive measures can they take you know we've got we've got ngos that look at that data we've got commodities brokers that look at that data we've got governments that look at that data so a number of customers for varying reasons are interested in that data source mm -hmm. you also talked about 
the example of, let's say, an insurance company who's insuring a crop, yeah. right? And they might be exposed if they if they don't have a good indicator on how the crop is doing, right? So they're interested in this kind of data as well. And if you could describe that, and I think to me, it seems like there's a whole new type of data or a whole new type of insight that you're and com- companies like yourself are providing that that take a lot of risk out of some of the world's industries like insurance, et cetera, that struggle with the visibility when they don't have the visibility that you could give them, uh, their risk is going to be greater. You summarize that extremely well, but let me give you a couple of sort of instances of where that plays out. Traditionally, and I'm going to talk a little bit about financial tools now, financing of growers right now first, and we'll get to insurance second. Historically, banks would lend to a farmer based on the capital employed, whether that's the value of the land, whether that's the machinery, but it was about backstopping a loan against an asset which could be effectively sold off to recover the value of the loan. As uh, farming has become more sophisticated, people tend to farm not only their own farm, but some neighboring land. Uh, Machinery has become much more efficient, so they can be used on a broader basis. You don't need as much machinery. So being able to leverage the traditional assets doesn't necessarily work as well today as it did historically. So what you're finding is growers are looking for new ways to fund the operating expenses until the crop produces a yield and is sold in the market. And in South America, for example, they're doing that by effectively pre-selling the crop itself. So they go to a lender, they say, I'm going to plant a bushel of apples and, you know, the market price for that bushel is going to be $5. So will you lend me the $2 so I can plant? Well, it's a bad example because trees don't come up that well, but you get the drift. I can plant the apples up at the front of the thing so I get the apples at the back or apply the nitrogen or whatever I need for the, for the annual crop. Um, And that works well. So in South America, you've seen people that are actually jumping into land based on the crop yield. In North America, they're doing that to some extent. There are players in the market. But one of the other things that they're doing is you're seeing the input manufacturers who are producing or supplying the nitrogen, the seed, and the insecticide saying, here's my recipe for your crop. If you use my recipe, I will guarantee that I will buy a certain amount of that output. So it kind of gives you a minimal amount of cash. Now, you still as a farmer have to go and borrow to plant, which can be a problem. So it's a slightly different mechanism in this case. But again, people are moving now to you know, I will guarantee you a payment on a future event. So that now takes the risk from a grower and transfers that risk over to either the people that are making the guarantee or in the case of South America, the people that are giving the money. So they want tools to understand how to manage their risk and their exposure. So in South America, we're dealing with lenders that are uh, lending and want to A, want to understand that when they lent money for a crop to be planted, that that crop indeed was planted. And it was planted fully across the geography that it was supposed to be fully planted across. All, again, can be validated with our system. And that as they go through that cycle, they can watch as well to see if they're increasing their exposure. Now, you know, bad weather events happen and stuff happens and you take a hit. That's how insurance companies work. The rest of the time they make money. So it's not always doesn't work out perfect. And because they have foresight to say that a crop is going to fail doesn't mean they can stop it from failing. But 
they can understand their risk profile and there's less surprises as they go through it. And yes, in some cases, there's things that can be done to mitigate the damage. Insurance obviously goes in parallel. So rowers usually get insurance. So one of the things they can do is make sure that the insurance coverage is relative to the crop that's expected to yield. And actually growers can actually increase their insurance as they're going through a harvest cycle. And if they think they're gonna have a better crop yield can up their insurance. So again, as a supplier or a lender of the money to do that, I'd wanna make sure that my grower was taking the appropriate action with this insurance company. Or maybe ultimately I'm insuring it on behalf of the grower, depends on how you strike the business deal. But you can start to see how that, when that risk transfer happens, other people want, or other entities want to manage their risk and want insight into what's going on. And our system can provide that. So it's really, really interesting. And we think it's providing new tools and new ways to incentivize growers ultimately to grow and ultimately be profitable. That's awesome. So how would that uh, farmer or insurance company in the future get their hands on your data? How do you deliver it to them? So we provide either the data stream. So we've got you know, a couple of different buyers right now. We've got some that are very sophisticated and have large internal capabilities that are effectively buy what I call that analytics ready data stack, that daily data stack. And they say, give me that data. I have a bunch of people that apply our algorithms and we extract the data. And then we've got a number of customers in the ag world. It's probably the majority of our customers with the exception of some very, very large players, which say, no, 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 what we want you to do is take that data, hand it to your analytics company and your analytics company will then tell us the actual crop health. So we'll give them a monitor or sorry, a, a report card, if you will, on a daily basis that says your crop is, you know, following the nominal curve, life is looking good, or red alert, you know, things are falling off, you've had four days, this is a signal of things going south, you know, FYI, and, you know, then we can decide or discuss what can be done, if anything, about that, depending on whether it's a weather-related wipeout or a fire in some cases or other things, so. Got it. Cool. So going back to your plan for the market, so as I understand it right now, you're about to launch your first constellation. Can you talk to me about your roadmap and you know what what is it going to take to get from where you are today to monitoring the Earth daily? So we are constructing ten satellites at the moment. We're about fifty percent through, to use a, a round number, if you will. But we will launch in series. So we're going to launch three satellites first, and right now they're due to go up on a SpaceX rocket in January of 2024. And then the other seven will go up in June of 2024. So we'll have everything up and running by mid-2024. And all the ground system and everything is being developed in parallel. So we are we should be up and going at that point. In terms of our, our business on a, on a broader basis, we're an Earth Observation Data and Data Analytics company. And there's really two things there. So again, back to the example I just gave, we have customers that want to buy the data. So large institutional customers, governments, for instance, which have large capability and often is dispersed between multiple departments or agencies, just want to buy the data and they want to do with it what they want to do. And again, we have other customers that want the actual insights. So as a business model, we're focused on being a data supplier, but we're going to be an analytics provider in areas which are robust enough to demand or command that capability 
And in ag, we've done that. We have about 100 people in our ag analytics business, and we're probably going to go into a few other verticals as well, which we think are attractive as a business to provide the actual insights. So do you predict that most major companies, let's say like insurance companies that are insuring agricultural crops have in the future some type of space data feed as part of how they look at the world? I think anybody who's going to be doing any significant business in agriculture will be using a data feed like ours or similar to ours. There's nothing similar to ours, but ours, let's say, in their future, yes. So last question then is, what's your vision for you know where you want to take Earth Daily, where you want to take your career? So, well, I'm kind of getting towards the end of my career. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to, to flying these satellites, getting them up and getting everything going. You know, the holy grail in this industry actually is not just about extracting data from one set of satellites. It's about aggregating data from multiple sources. And that could include, you know, contextualizing or integrating data from social media. It could be all sorts of things which can be put together. And it's really about getting high quality streams and then figuring out how to integrate them to extract an insight which you would otherwise not understand or see. So I think, you know, the first stage for us is this everywhere every day with the the 22 spectral bands that we're going to have. But we're also looking forward now, we're working with some partners where we think they're doing some things which are unique, albeit different than what we're doing. Can we integrate their data sources with ours to extract some new information or some new insights? We believe so. Those are primarily satellite focused today in the short term, but, you know, we're starting to look into terrestrial areas and where we can play with exactly what we talked about before, maybe some drone imagery, maybe something that's not space-based or aerial-based at all. Maybe it's terrestrial-based. So there's other information sources we think if we aggregate them and can and help again managing some of the risks of these larger problems. And that's yeah. really the exciting part of what I got to look forward in the remaining part of my career. Yeah, that's great. It's like we're at the cusp of a whole new way of viewing the earth. So, Yeah. And I think we've all learned that information is far more value than we would have thought um, you know, 20 years ago or 30 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, thanks for talking to me today. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time, John. Yeah, awesome. All right. Thanks a lot, Don. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Hey, everybody. That was a really great conversation with Don. His insights are right on the money. If we're going to be looking at tons and tons of data from space, data quality, well, that's a no-brainer. And Earth Daily Analytics has an amazing plan to help us achieve that. It's been really fascinating recording the first several episodes. We're going to take a short break and then be back online in January. See you then.